Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. Today's guest is J. Ryan Straddle. His first novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, was published by Viking in 2015 and reached the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. His short fiction has appeared in Hobart, The Rumpus, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Los Angeles Review of Books, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Electric Literature, and Midwestern Gothic, among others. His second novel, The Logger Queen of Minnesota, is available now. J. Ryan joined me today to talk about representation of the Midwest in popular culture, the rising importance of microbreweries in small communities, and the lost stories of the middle class. Let's talk about the book, The Logger Queen of Minnesota. One of the things that, as I said, really appeals to me about it is that it's about the Midwest, and it's settled in the Midwest, and you grew up in the Midwest. I often see, and I imagine you probably do too, writers and TV show producers and movies always trying to do the Midwest and like not quite getting it if sometimes completely missing the mark and really cornholing us. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I, I would love for you to let us know your opinion. I totally agree. I've seen films over the years like Butter, for example, which I thought was extremely condescending. Yes. Kind of the, the writer of that movie, I'm not going to name names, but I, I, he's from Maryland. He's not even from the Midwest, mm-hmm. you know? we got to make our own art. <laughs> we got to represent <laughs> our own people. And, and so a lot of ways, it is response to me not seeing our people represented properly or with enough depth or imagination. But also, not just a course correction or a diatribe, it's a celebration of these people. Being a Minnesotan, I'm, I'm more inclined to praise what I love than denigrate what I hate. I'm more motivated to um, write stories about these people because I love them than do it as some kind of retort to culture at large. But but that does play into it. I wasn't seeing enough stories about the people I consider to be my people out there in the world in any media. There are plenty of great Midwestern writers, don't get me wrong. Peter Guy, uh, Nicholas Butler, uh, Lorna Landvik, uh, Louise Erdrich, yep. Jane Smiley. There, there's a ton of them. But in terms of writing about kind of contemporary working class, bourbon and kind of ex-herb people, like the people I grew up with, like wasn't seeing a ton of that. That's kind of my my sweet spot in terms of inspiration, subject matter. It's like people that live in these smaller towns on the outskirts of a city and live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, that's <laughs> yep, that's how, us. How I grew up. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. yeah. Me too. Um, uh, I encourage you as an offside, uh, check out the author Donald Ray Pollock. I'll, I'll... Oh yeah. Oh, you bet. I saw him on a panel a while ago, and he was really cool. Oh, he's amazing. I actually, I actually bought one of his books at that event, 
and gave it directly to my brother. Give it to me when you're done. And he's never given it back to me. Yeah. <laughs> you need yeah. to take uh, so, it back because that man okay. is my idol. I mean, pure, oh, great. pure Midwest. He's from uh, the Circleville area up here. Very Southern Ohio, oh, very sweet. Appalachia. And he's oh, cool. stunningly talented. So Cool. Yeah, I, I've heard people compare him to Dennis Johnson. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about that. So the other thing that you talk about, and you just mentioned it too, in response to the question about the Midwest in general, is middle class. And it's so true that so much of our popular culture is centered on the uber rich or the uber poor. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we talk about. And it's like those, that's where the stories are. And um, that's not true. I mean, there is that grind and that struggle of just making it it's so terrifying in itself in some ways and i know it it plays into the book so if you could talk about that for a little bit well it's also so rich with conflict Mm -hmm. i mean when you're struggling to make it every day is some kind of conflict anytime you can't answer a problem with money you've got conflict and that's one of the things i find kind of amusing uh, about the fact that so many books are written about wealthy people or, or at least financially stable people it's like boy, what problem do they have that they can't solve with their wallet? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the people I grew up with couldn't say that. And my characters, most of them can't. Every situation could end up becoming septic for them. Mm-hmm. You know, like the smallest cut could kill them sometimes. I, I enjoy exploring that dynamic because, you know, you grew up in a world where, you know, as Edith says in my book, you treat money like a motorcycle driver treats asphalt. It keeps you going, but a mistake with it can kill you. Mm-hmm. I knew a lot of people who are very risk averse, you know, Yes. certainly very cautious, very, uh, if not stingy, at the very least, you know, very conservative with money. Like, yeah. I grew up in a family, we didn't eat out a lot. No. You know, I wanted to, though. Boy, I'll tell you that when I started working out, out, out of the house and making my own money, I spent it almost all on restaurants and mm-hmm. CDs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So those kind of purchasing decisions, having opportunity cost when it comes to money, mm-hmm. you know, and I explore that with my character, Diana, you know, she's got a job. She makes money doing uh, something criminal on the side. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she's got money that she needs to sustain her and her grandma's life, but also looks at this money in her life and goes, what do I spend it on? Yeah. I have a choice. I can't do both things. Boy, that's as dramatic as it gets. I'm I'm surprised more people don't explore this realm. Talking to uh, someone else earlier today, and uh, we talked about this topic, and it came up that, well, maybe not enough people come out of the working class to become writers. That's true. <laughs> and, and, and that could be a part of it, too, is that you've got to be in a fairly privileged situation to be able to afford the time off to write a book. Yeah. Or at least have your mornings free. I mean, if you have kids and you're working a full-time job, I mean... How many hours a day do you get to write? You can do it. I know people who do. It's a lot harder. You know, someone whose parents paid for their MFA and now they get to sit in an apartment in Brooklyn and write their novel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, very different than from what I came from. <laughs> exactly. Same here. Same here. And they're obviously going to write a different kind of novel than you yeah. or I. Yeah. You know, they, I, I don't even think they should try to write a novel set in Ohio. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't want to read it. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And that's the yeah. that's the experience that I had. Um, I'm lucky enough. I'm able to write full time now. But, you know, I. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Was, me, too. And I, I feel the same way. I feel lucky. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, sure so lucky. Yeah. Yes. And always yeah. aware that it could be taken from you. Like yep. that's, Oh, yes. Well, and you mentioned being risk averse as part oh, of yeah. that middle class mentality. And, and I see that. I mean, you can't <laughs> to take a stand and say, I'm going to be an artist. I mean, that's all risk. 
Oh my God, yeah, and it's not, and it was a risk my parents supported. You know, my mom supported and understood because she always wanted to be a novelist herself. Mm-hmm. My dad was slower. His burner on the stove was slower to heat up under yeah, that pot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's into it now, you know. But uh, at first, when I went to college, he was like, oh, you should major in a, in a skill, like yeah. in a trade. And so I majored in radio, TV, film, partially, you know, partially to make him happy, but also because I was scared shitless of the idea of writing prose at the time. Of course. I was a young dude. I didn't like to revise. Right. I didn't revise. Oh my God! What what insanity was that? You no, know, I didn't that, either. Yeah. My very first book, yeah. I finished it in college. I wrote a novel, uh-huh. finished it, and was like, yeah. "I'm sending this to publishers," and I did. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and Fate you know that up, didn't yeah. end well. That did not. That didn't work out. <laughs> and thank God it didn't. Oh no! Just imagine if that had been your first book out there, you wouldn't be able. If it was still on shelves, like right. you know, you oh, wouldn't and, be able to look at it. And yeah, thank you'd, God you'd that watch... self-publishing didn't exist then, because oh, oh my God! No. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. I know, I know, I know. Just imagine. No. It's... Yeah, and, and I and I talk to writing classes sometimes about that. About like I've sent out this story fifty or sixty times, and it hasn't been accepted. I'm like. You know, <laughs> maybe in five years, you'll be glad it wasn't. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Also think of that. I have a, a blog post, an interview with another author coming up tomorrow, and she was querying for six years and had over 500 rejections. Wow. And, you know, I, wow. I was querying for 10 and I definitely okay. had over 500, but I'm, I'm not sure how many. But that, and she says the same thing. It's like it was all on me. I was yeah. just so convinced that I was a little undiscovered genius. I wasn't revising. Yep. I wasn't putting yep. in the work. Oh. I wasn't even rereading my oh. own stuff. I was just like, this is awesome. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. So young. Oh, no. So confident. Like, this is, yeah, Kerouac writing on the road. This is just my <laughs> roll of typewriter paper right here. I know I wrote a manuscript in my 20s that'll never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. But I was, of course, you know, disappointed about that at the time, you know, like oh, any yeah. writer would be. Yeah. I didn't even get a response from agents. Yeah. I mean, once or twice, I maybe got, we received it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But certainly no one asking for a full. And in the cases I sent a full, like, no response, <laughs> you know. like. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at it now and I perfectly understand. It's an embarrassing piece of work. But it was the first novel I had to write more to develop the discipline of writing a novel. Absolutely. I, you know? I would get partial requests yeah. and I would send them off and it would just be like crickets. And now yep. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, I'm glad they didn't respond. I don't want to know what they thought. Me neither. I, I'm, I'm glad that some of these agents are no, no longer in the business and they're no longer around to besmirch my good name. You know, <laughs> should they check their email archive? So you mentioned writing that bad first novel and getting out of your system. Yeah. How many novels did you complete? How many books, I should say, did you finish before you got an agent? Okay, well, I got an agent with my second one, but it was 10 years later. And in the intervening 10 years, I took extension classes at UCLA, which were great because, first of all, I had a instructor, Lou Matthews, best instructor I've ever had, mm-hmm. who read my work and said, you know what, Jay Ryan? Your work's going to get a whole lot better once you start writing about things you care about. <laughs> and I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> he was right. He was right. I was like, all right, okay. Waddled out of there like an ashamed toddler. But then, you know, <laughs> I thought, you know, I got to, he's right. I got to take him up on, on this. And so that was one thing. The other two things were a ton of reading. Mm-hmm. And a lot of writing. I published my first short story in 2006 after my mom died. It was about four years before I had another one. 
published. Yeah. And that four years was instructive too, because I wrote, I was writing, submitting that whole time. You know, I was mm. burning up duotrope, <laughs> you know, like it was the deadliest catch captain smoking cigarettes, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was, you know, I just didn't let it get me down. I could feel myself getting better. I took the, I took Lou's advice, started getting short stories out in the world again. And one was published in 2010 and 2011, then a couple in 2012. And it was just slowly building up a little mm-hmm. momentum. And in 2013, I started writing Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd been thinking about it since 2009. I'd been saving money since then to take a year off from mm-hmm. work. I'd been working in TV production, but I just couldn't help it anymore. I, uh, February of 2013, while working on a show called Storage Wars Texas, I just started writing it in the morning, you know, before going into work. And um, the rest is history, I guess. It took me about a year to write, writing every day. Yes. And when Storage Wars Texas was canceled for some reason, who knows? <laughs> and uh, I just thought, you know, most of the time I'd hop onto another production. But this time, you know, I'm going to take this as a blessing and I'm going to keep writing. I'm, I'm going to use the full day now and treat it like a job. Yeah. And that was another huge lesson was treat it like a job. Wake up, yeah. clock in, do your writing. I don't have any sort of word count or page count assigned to every day, but I do try to write every day. I think what you're saying, you've got two like mini MFA courses right there. Um, write about mm. something you care about, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is great. And treat it like a job. That's that's yeah. a big one. I read, and I believe it was a uh, Nick Cave, the singer. Oh yeah. Who yeah, also he's yes, he's amazing. He also writes novels, and I oh, believe yeah. that I read somewhere. I have it stuck in my head that it was him. So if I'm if I'm attributing this to the wrong person, then I apologize, Nick Cave, but um, I read somewhere that <laughs> even when he is just writing at home, he wakes up in the morning and he puts on a suit. Oh, yeah. And goes, I've heard that. Yeah, and goes to his office to write because he has to treat it. He has to tell himself he's at work. Yeah, my buddy Brian Cave on, he rents uh, like an office about a mile or two from his home that he goes to. Yeah. You know, and so it's like going to work for him. I think it's really smart because so one funny. of the things I see writers talking about all the time on Twitter, and, and I'm guilty of it too, is that we lay around in our pajamas all day. And Oh, um, sure. Because we can. And I think I yeah. would probably take myself a little more seriously if I had pants on. I do notice my writing gets better if I if I have pants on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As it should. I feel a little less sloppy if I've actually, yeah. you know, got some support. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, actually the major theme with the Lager Queen of Minnesota is the emergence of brewery culture. And you talk a lot about how you visited breweries and you learned so much about um, all of the brewery process and the families and the communities that do pop up around a brewery, especially in small towns where they can be like a social hub. So if you could talk about that. Yeah, I've been noticing that since I was touring for kitchens, you mm-hmm. know, because I did over 120 stops for kitchens, mostly in the Midwest. That's where so much of the brewery culture has been historically and is now, you know, mm-hmm. and it's wonderful to roll into these smaller towns that were a lot less lively 10 years ago. Have this center, have this epicenter. Uh, you've got some like local people working there that normally would be working elsewhere, be going to the big city or would have outright moved to the big city by now. Or in a factory. Yeah, exactly. And they're making something, keeping money in the in the local economy, hiring locals to work the tap room and giving families, young families, couples, people with pets, quite often a place to come hang out that's not denominational, that's not a chain, that doesn't funnel the money outside of town somewhere. Has a little bit more conviviality than a coffee shop. Also can be a little more raucous. You can have like, you know, musicians that aren't just a solo 
acoustic guitarist in the corner. Yes. I really love it. I love, I love seeing it. And I love their uh, effect on, on small town America in the Midwest. I've been motivated to write about it since then. And I wanted to marry it with this idea I had of writing the story of uh, an unfairly divided farmland inheritance, mm. which has happened a couple times on both sides of the family. Yeah, it happens and, a lot. Uh, I thought, oh, how can I marry these two things together? And Lager Queen is a result of that. I find often when I'm traveling for work or um, just visiting friends like from college that are scattered usually around the state, they do. You know, most places have a a semi-local brewery. Everybody wants to show it to you. Everybody's proud and everybody wants you to try it. And and, um, like no matter Mm -hmm. what I actually think, I always tell them (laughs) that it's good because you can't say. Oh, yeah. You can't. (laughs) Yeah, you got to say it's good. It's like it's like going to your, your your grandma's house and she makes you a pie. Right. You know, what are you going to say? Like, grandma, your, <laughs> your pie makes me cry. I'm going <laughs> to cry to sleep thinking about this pie. No, no. It's funny to think of brewery as pride of place you yes. know, for, for a community. But it really is. I went through a period of time where I was really into the the micro brews and the, the mini brews. And mm-hmm. So I would tweet about it a lot. And I was traveling, I think it was a couple years ago, I was traveling and I ended up out in California. And I had a fan, she actually mm-hmm. brought me like a six pack of the local brew. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was really cool. But I my signing ended at like 930. I had to fly out at five in the morning. I had like you know, a six pack yeah. of this local brew. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, you know, slam these can't possibly overnight. Drink this. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So. I know that happens to me too. Sometimes people will give me beer like tall boys or something like yeah. at the end of the night when I've got a 530 AM flight or something I'm like, well, maybe I've got a buddy here that I can pass this along to and I'll take a picture of this can. And next time I'm in this town, I'll make a point of having this beer. That is exactly what I did. I took a picture and I left it for housekeeping because I was like, I can't, I can't drink six beers tonight. Like that's not, not on the table. (laughs) Not on the table. Oh boy. The demands on writers. Oh God. To drink all this beer. People give you so much beer, beer and coffee. That's the thing. Yeah. 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 Hey, I'll take it. I love them both. I do too. Do you have anything that you're working on now? What do you have coming up next? Or are you just still focused on uh, pushing the lager queen? I am working on another book, tentatively titled Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Nice. So the setting is a Midwestern supper club, like of uh, northern Minnesota, Wisconsin ilk, with the uh, fish fries and the uh, brandy old fashions. So that's the primary setting. But it's really, once again, more about the people, about the family involved. I was writing it yesterday at a hotel in Connecticut. You know, I don't know if I'll have time to work on it today, but yeah, no, it's a world I, I love being in and mm-hmm. develop some brand new characters. And But still, Midwestern setting. I'm not not yet done talking about the Midwest. I no. feel like it's it's home to me in a lot of ways and also has presented me with a lot of puzzles that I need to unpack. Yep, that's very true. <laughs> yep. I, I hear yep. you. All of my books yeah. are set in Ohio, small town, small town Ohio, because I, I don't see enough of that. Yeah. One more reading recommendation. If you haven't already picked it up, uh, Stephen Markley wrote a book called Ohio. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard about it. It's good. Yeah, good, good, good. That, that is good to hear. It's All about right. a group of high school friends. Yeah, um, it, it follows yeah. them in high school and then also in their adult lives. And uh, it really captures the Midwest, specifically Ohio. Um, oh, great. Just really good. Really good. I was all over it. So Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for the rec. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for the interview. It was awesome. I'll let you go. I know you yeah. got another one to get to, but it was a yeah. great talk. Good times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was invigorating.
Writer Writer Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.